0: on the mixtape just around the corner did a lot in california can't wait to drop this don't you yeah they gonna have fun with that smash like song good my songs gonna break through like a running hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with formula one my name is mark hamilton and joining me today my friend my neighbor my frenemy my neighborhood resident op mr Daily and daily and myself today, we're going to talk about chicken sandwiches, we're going to talk about Formula 2 cars, but before we do any of that, my friend, huge shout out to you for taking the Zandvoort race review all on your own. You know, it's one of those days, some stuff came up and logistically, I wasn't going to be able to get in front of a mic, man. You did not only one podcast on Sunday, for crying out loud, you did two race reviews. Yeah, that's
1: right. I did uh, nailing the apex with our good friend uh, Tim Harady, and then literally right after I finished uh, talking with him, and it was crazy, dude. Because like we sit down here each and every Thursday night to record the show, and we have like this built-in time factor that no matter whatever we throw into the show outline, when we both kind of get to that 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 mutual we're done moment, we look down at the clock and it's at like ninety minutes. And usually when we sit down and do something with Tim. And not that we run out of things to talk about, but we tend to do it in sub like one hour within, you know, 45, 60 minutes tops. I sat there with Tim and we ran almost 90 minutes on the Dutch Grand Prix. And I was, dude, I, I was tired after that, like not physically tired, but it was pretty good. Like I felt that, you know, Tim and I had a pretty solid uh, conversation about uh, the the race and the whole weekend. And then I sat down and I did our show and I, I couldn't help but think afterwards, like, did that actually go okay? Because because like I did like three hours of recording on Sunday afternoon. It was a bit of an effort, but uh, it was good. It was fun. It was a crazy Grand Prix in and of itself. So there was uh, plenty of talking points. You know, I needed to talk it out loud a couple of times to actually go back and help me process some of the things I actually saw. But My it was My friend, all
0: good. no rest for the wicked. We are nope. right back this weekend. And we're going to Monza, which we'll save for the back of the podcast. So kind of stew on that. Sure. But can I, I ask excited. you one thing, one go thing ahead. before we go on? Before we is it we about chicken sandwiches? Because that's the only thing I want to talk about tonight. I
1: want to talk about chicken sandwiches too because I kind of missed my my lunch today, so I, I'm definitely thinking about food. But even though we're we're going to preview the race later, out of all the tracks that we've seen over the course of watching Formula One over the the years that uh, that you and know, I have been race fans, where does Monza rate on say your top? I don't know let's say top five lists.
0: Yeah, so one I'm super and this wasn't scripted by the way for anyone listening at home, but <laughs> I was thinking about this earlier today when I was cleaning toilets for some reason. But but Monza, the the Temple of Speed, to me is just is just the epitome of motorsports excellence. And I get that it's not a technical track. Um, But to me, motorsports above all else, like I get aerodynamics and aerodynamic efficiency and, and fighting drag and all those kind of pieces and downforce, blah, 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 blah. But to me, there's something really visceral and raw about a track that depends so heavily on the power unit. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. But this this track expects so much of the power unit. And I think the statistic I read earlier is that for 80% of the track, the drivers are full throttle. Like that engine has worked harder at this track than it is anywhere mm-hmm. else in the championship. And to me, that's something that's really attractive and really compelling, partly because of the sound, but because I, I have a tremendous appreciation for extremely capable, powerful, reliable power units. Um, And this, this track absolutely stresses them to, the maximum but for me probably a top five track i I don't Mm -hmm. i maybe one day i should do my mount actually that would be a really good podcast we should do our mount rushmore of drivers and our mount rushmore of tracks but definitely up there for sure i gotta ask you though what about you how do you rank monza
1: Oh yeah, it's right up there in the in, in I'd say top three, but you, when Whoa. you're just talking about like the like the the you know the power units and everything, there's that really famous video of Juan Pablo Montoya in the Williams. I guess that would have been like a V10 power from about 20 years ago, setting like breaking the fastest lap around Monza, which was only broken like I think within the last couple of years. That time and that's like that average speed he had for that lap was was broken just in the last couple of years. But it is fantastic. I mean, it, it's not HD, obviously, you know, being from the early 2000s, but it is just amazing to see JPM throw that car around Monza. Plus, the scream of that V10 engine is is pretty amazing. So, go check it out. Uh, just put a Juan Pablo Montoya Monza into YouTube, and that's going to come up. It's uh, it's definitely worth the one minute nineteen seconds out of your life or whatever it is. You'll you'll want to watch it a couple of times.
0: So, daily one one last kind of off-topic thing before we kick off the show. Here in Canada, kids go back to school after Labor Day weekend. I know in in a lot of the U.S., they go back as early as the beginning of August, but here they go back right after Labor Day weekend. So, a lot of them have a half day on the Tuesday. Are you ready for your kids to go back to school? Is this overdue? Do you want that structure back in your life?
1: Yeah, I'm ready for them to go back, but I know Tuesday's going to be like a horrible day. Like I know that every parent then sending a kid back to school on Tuesday. And also, did you know no white pants after Labor Day? I don't know why I know that, but just uh, you know that's a thing. So just make sure you don't do that. But yeah, it's 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 been a great summer, but certainly it's going to be good to see them uh, go back to school on Tuesday. So it's all good. It's all good. Cool.
0: Moving on. Moving on. Do your typical race weekend. What's the other one we always do that I completely forgot? Racing exclusive spiel, and we'll get on with the show.
1: I, you know that's kind of crazy because like usually we run out of things about 90 minutes into it I feel like we've hit a bit of speed bump but that's okay fasten your t- seat belts, a little bit of turbulence but as Hammy said before we get into it just want to show a little bit of love to our sponsors the Race Weekend magazine check them out at theraceweekend.com that's R-A-C-E W-K-N-D.com enter in our promo code Pod at checkout to save 10% on a year-long subscription also check out racingexclusives.com for unique and one-of-a-kind Formula 1 merch with a certificate of authenticity they're the ones that have provided our autographed, yes, autographed Max Verstappen one-half scale helmet for the win of our Fantasy League. And uh, we're going to give that away. That's going to come quickly, man. Like uh, now that you just uh, said it's Labor Day this weekend, that the end of the season is coming fast. So that that's going to go to a pretty happy person in, a, you know, not too far down the road here. And then, um, yeah, so check them out, recentexclusives.com. And just quickly, we'll just run down some of the standings here in the World Championship. Max Verstappen leading the driver's side of the Formula One uh, 2023 World Championship. 339 points is a teammate Sergio Perez, 201. Fernando Alonso is third with 168. Lewis Hamilton, fourth with 156. And you have uh, a bunch of drivers uh, all packed uh, close together. you got Carlos Sainz, fifth with 102. Charles Leclerc and George Russell, each with 99. Charles with, uh, is in sixth. George is in seventh. Then you have Lando, Lance Stroll, and Pierre Gasly rounding out the top 10. Over on the constructors' side, you have Red Bull obviously leading the way still 540 points. Mercedes is second with 255, Aston Martin is third with 215, Ferrari fourth with 201 and McLaren rounds out the top 5 in the constructors with 111 points. So I just sat there and, you know, really pumped up the, you know, the, the, the autographed half scale Max Verstappen helmet. So do we have the fantasy championship? We, we our do. Fantasy? We think, do. You asked that you know, so
0: nervously, but I have to, I do to because
1: I know it's like the most horrible sight of the world and it's, uh, <laughs> it's not always cooperative when we need it.
0: I got it. I got it. So uh, there has been some significant movement in the top 10 this week, um, entering the top 10 for the first time this season is M. Hamilton. No, no, that's too obvious. Uh, entering the top <laughs> 10 is Mark H underscore... T- I joke, I joke. I'm sitting in 235th place. Number one, still <laughs> in number one, locked in Vince Desk two with 4,071 points, sitting in number two. Nice. Bengals, Bub sitting on 4,048 points, so just 23 points separating them. Um, slipping down a little bit, Michael kranji 16, is number three. Ole's Land is number four. Vince Desk, number one. He's got two teams in the top 10. And slips to number five gotifi team number six crash team racing seven lions f1 eight buenos diaz nine matt noob team three number nine i don't think i've seen that team before tails i win still slotted in at 11 no does in 11 as well but that's down a spot city of signs up to 13 the bad guy bye-bye up to 14 yellow racing also up to 14 and in 16th place nathan's Team so Vince Des seems to have it's not a stranglehold because it's only twenty three points but I feel like this could be a twenty twenty one where it goes down to the very very last race between between Vince Des and Bengals Bubs.
1: Yeah, that's that's not a big lead in fantasy that 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 can change so we'll definitely keep a, an eye on that. Another thing to keep an eye on is what we know now about the driver lineup for 2024. We're going to talk about Mercedes Lewis and uh, George Russell uh, announcing uh, contracts until 2025. So, Start with Red Bull. Or, sorry, pardon me, with Mercedes. Lockdown. Hamilton, Russell going to be there for two more years. For and Perez, allegedly are going to be uh, the Red Bull pairing for 2024. Ferrari, no change there with Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz. Uh, then Aston Martin, Fernando Alonso and Lance Stroll. We're going to talk about that in a minute. McLaren, Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri. That's been a pretty good uh, pairing. That's uh, you know really developed nicely over the year. Alpine, no change there with Pierre Gasly and Esteban Ocon confirmed last year that they're bringing back Kevin Magnuson and Nico Hulkenberg. And then over at Williams, that's going to be a little bit of a, a question mark. We know Alex Albon is coming back. Logan Sargent, the American rookie, not a lock, not a certainty to come back in 2024. Although I talked about it with Tim on Sunday, I thought, well, if they, they kept Nikki, um, you know, Nick Latifi hanging around for, for a number of years, that maybe they might, unless they got somebody better to bring in, that's always a possibility. Over at Alpha Romeo, Valtteri Bottas confirmed for 24. And Joe Guan Yu, maybe some question marks there as to whether or not uh, he will be back uh, next year at Alpha Romeo. And then big question marks at Alpha Tauri. Nobody confirmed for 2024. No Yuki Sonoda. no Daniel Ricciardo, obviously no Nick DeFries. So there are a couple of seats uh, still up for grabs. Um, you know, no big names or any move at the, at the big teams. But be interesting to see who slots in it. Williams, uh, Alpha Romeo, and Alpha Tauri—so interesting stuff going on. Do we want to jump? I guess we should jump right into. No, let's have a bit of a, a breather here first. You wanted to quickly talk about the the F two cars, and then maybe we'll go into a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll we'll dive into the contract stuff because that will take uh, quite a bit of time.
0: Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'll I'll, I'll kind of jump on this one. So if you've been on social media this week, which unfortunately I haven't been because now I have a corporate laptop as opposed to doing work on my personal <laughs> laptop. So I don't have access to all of those distractions. I hope my bosses aren't listening. But earlier this week, the FIA has uh, unveiled the new Formula 2 car, which will be used from the 2024 season onward. Of course, just as a reminder, the Formula 2 Championship is based on spec cars, so all of the cars that all of the teams drive are identical, um, and teams are provided a little bit of allowance in terms of tuning and setting up the cars every single season. The first thing that you'll notice when you check out the new F2 car is it looks Resoundingly like a Formula One car. In fact, I was Mm -hmm. watching an interview earlier today with uh, Tatiana Calderon and she had the opportunity to test drive the new chassis in 2020 or back in July. And one of the first comments that she made was, wow, it looks like a baby. It looks like a baby uh, Formula One car, which is, which is pretty cool because I think it'll help from a marketing and a promotions perspective, a couple of things that will stay the same uh, will be obviously that the chassis, although new, will be provided by Dallara um, and the power unit, the 3.4 liter turbocharged Mechachrome engine will carry over and will continue to produce a whopping 620 horsepower. But this is where things get a little bit spicy. So one, aerodynamically, it looks a lot more like a Formula One car. Um, It has an entirely reworked front nose, which is far more technical and far more complex than what we see day a completely new front wing uh, a chassis that's been significantly revised specifically with safety in mind um, the the halo is being kind of spoken to as an f1 spec halo so it looks like the the primary halo infrastructure from a formula one car is being adopted into the f2 spec which is pretty cool from a safety perspective significant revisions from the rollover structure on um, the cockpit's been revised and then one of the biggest things you'll notice when you look at this car is hey looks like a formula one car except for the rear wing what the mm-hmm. heck is going on with that rear wing I don't have the answers yet. I'll get there. Uh, but if you have the opportunity, check it out because it's it's pretty cool. Um, I know Stefano Domenicali is very positive about this. He said, um, and I quote, together with the FIA, we've designed a powerful, challenging, and safe car that will prepare young drivers for F1, and that will continue to provide great racing and a lot of overtaking opportunities, something that the fans expect from f too. Actually, that quote isn't from Domenicali at all. It's from CEO Bruno Mac- Um He continues, it has been designed also to fit all types of drivers, taking into account FIA's consideration regarding the steering effort. This is obviously key to making our sport more inclusive by enhancing our car's drivability and comfort. So, Pretty cool. Everyone's very excited about this. It should be safer. Um, it should create more aerodynamic downforce. It carries over the same power unit. It should be potentially a little bit faster, uh, but ultimately that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a more raceable car. But again, given the fact that it's a spec series, it does a pretty good job of helping provide frame of reference in terms of how talented the individual drivers are in the championship. So, again, if you follow F2, Awesome, probably good update for you. If you don't, maybe a reason to tune in and check out a couple of F two races next year.
1: You know, I think it's kind of cool about the graphic that uh, that you pulled for this one that uh, from Formula Two and the FIA is you, you have this uh, this concept car here or this uh, this diagram of it, and they've got like all these different labels on here. It says rear wing improved aerodynamic wake performance to aid close racing. And it, it's funny you said I don't know what the heck is going on with that rear wing because. It is radically different than what we see on Formula One cars at the moment, totally. which is quite a bit different than what we saw prior to 2022. So this is a radical design. So I'm I'm very interested to see, because we always talk about like trickle down technology in Formula One, right? That is kind of the pinnacle of motorsport engineering and a lot of what happens in, uh, in Formula One you know, literally trickles down to other racing series and eventually, you know, supposedly, you know, there's that old quote about being road relevant, but it'll be interesting in this case in regards to the rear wing, if there's a trickle up effect, even though that's not really a thing. But um, I almost kind of wonder, like I was looking at these pictures, like at this, this concept car, whether or not this is almost the, you know, the test bed, like a trial to see if, if, if they can get this to work in F2, whether or not there might be some something that they can bring over to F1 because you know that 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 the rear wing that we see of the F1 cars now is part of this like aerodynamic package that was really supposed to as this graphic says like aid close, close racing which we haven't haven't seen although this last weekend at, uh, at Zahnfort we had 186 uh, overtakes which I believe is a record and surpassed China for a couple of years ago so that uh, I don't know <laughs> sometimes we sit here it's like man that was not a very exciting race and then other weeks Weekends, you get stats like we saw at the Dutch Grand Prix last weekend. Is like, well, maybe these new, you know, whatever. That's a, a bit of a different uh, conversation. But uh, hey, Mark, why don't we just uh, break a little bit ahead of schedule here? We'll come back. We'll talk about the Hamilton and Russell contracts. We'll talk about um, also what's happening at uh, at Aston Martin and Landstroll. So we'll do that. We'll take a quick break. Hear from our sponsors. Back in a moment. We'll pick it up on the flip side. So don't go away. Go to your happy price, Price line. All right, welcome back. And we are going to get right into it now. So, the big news today, which is awesome because usually we sit down and it's so th- this has been a complaint, Mark, for like the years that we've done this show together. We'll sit down, we'll record the show. We feel like it's an absolute banger. It's like, oh, that felt like that was a really good podcast. We'll wake up on a Friday morning and then we start texting each other back and forth. It's like, oh, man, did you see what broke like, <laughs> since we, we finished recording? Fortunately, I, it must have been Hamilton, Lewis Hamilton. Doing a long lost family relation, a bit of a solid, you know that being you, and no, of course it wasn't, but uh, (laughs) joking aside, it was nice for once that uh, that big news because this is big news: Lewis Hamilton signing a two-year contract or a contract that will extend his period with Mercedes till the end of twenty twenty-five. Same with George Russell. So that'll mean that by the time this contract is done and. I don't know. Perhaps he signs another one afterwards, maybe not. But if at the very least that will mean that at the end of 2025 Lewis Hamilton will have been with Mercedes for 13 seasons. That is absolutely amazing. George Russell as well has uh, signed a a two-year contract as well. Hamilton uh, said afterwards, quote, "We we dream every day of being the best and we have dedicated the past decade together to achieving that goal. Being at the top does not happen overnight or over a short period of time. It takes commitment, hard work, and dedication and it's been an honor to earn our way into the history books with this incredible team. We've never been hungrier to win. We have learned from every Success, but also every setback. We continue to chase our dreams. We continue to fight, no matter the challenge, and we will win again. I'm grateful the team who have supported me both on and off the track. Our story isn't finished. We are determined to achieve more together, and we won't stop until we do. End quote. And then uh, George Russell, and George Russell here, 25. When did that happen? When did George Russell turn 25? Like, like when I see him and Max and Lando and all these guys and Charles, like to me, they they should be like these. Anyways, life goes way too quickly. Anyways, George had the following to say, quote, I've grown up with this team ever since joining as part of the junior program back in 2017. It is my home and it feels fantastic to extend our special relationship through 2025. After stepping up to the Mercedes race seat last year, I wanted to reward the trust and belief that Toto and the rest of the team have placed in me. Taking my first pole position in race win last year was an unforgettable feeling. More importantly though, it's been great to work with everybody at Brackley and at Brixworth." to make progress with our car and push forward at our push forward our development their loyalty vision and hard work is inspiring we have made some significant steps over the past 18 months and are only getting stronger as a team i'm excited to help continue build on that momentum as we progress into 2024 and 2025 and continue to focus on returning to the very front of the pack end quote you know, big news, like I say, I think that uh, now over at Brackley at uh, Mercedes, okay, driver's not going to be an issue for the next two years. Let's get this car figured out. Let's get back and challenge Red Bull or whoever, and let's go back and win some races. Your thoughts on this uh, This news of uh, Lewis Hamilton and George Russell?
0: Yeah, I-, I, think, I think it's a great deal. I mean, the I have a lot of questions. I mean, first and foremost, I'd love to know the value of these contracts. And there's tons of speculation online about what the total value is. It's unclear, and we maybe will never find out, although hopefully somebody will break that news at some point. But I'm curious. But ultimately, that's <laughs> that's irrelevant. It probably shouldn't influence the way they drive the cars. But I think it was a logical decision by Mercedes. They've obviously invested a lot in George Russell. He's been a part of the Mercedes family since 2017. And Lewis, and, and this is the funny thing, too, like we talk about the fact that Lewis Lewis's tenure with the Mercedes works team now dates back to 2013. He signed that deal in late 2012. Uh, it seems like it's going to go on forever. But you forget as well that during his time at McLaren, that was a Mercedes powered car, and prior to prior to Mercedes buying the Braun team after 2009 they were effectively McLaren was effectively a Mercedes works team and obviously that relationship broke down for a number of different reasons but really he's been intimately tied to Mercedes for his entire career so I know we think about his career kind of being two phases McLaren and then Mercedes but really there's been that consistent thread of Mercedes as the backdrop of of his of his experience in Formula 1 the whole time so super super cool uh, I thought there was a couple of really good quotes from from uh from lewis hamilton speaking to his longevity and you know he he talked and this is from motorsport.com but he talked about looking at tom brady and of course i probably perked your ears as a big nfl guy and our american Mm -hmm. listeners are probably turning up their headphones a little bit but he spoke to tom brady really as an inspiration for what's possible um, if you're hungry um hungry to be successful but also that you adapt your diet in your fitness regimen uh to to the sport and you know there's a of quotes here from from Lewis Hamilton I'll just pull these up right here one his the continuation of his career is about redemption we know that's in the past obviously referring to Abu Dhabi 2021 there's nothing that can be done about the past but what we can do is work hard to be more precise and be better moving forward and I truly believe that with this team we could win more world championship more races together that's where all my energy is going um, and then he also spoke to the fact that Tom Brady like I said is someone he admires because obviously Tom, how, how old was Tom Brady when he played his final NFL season did he and retire again? I don't even know.
1: <laughs> well, I think he is officially retired now. But Tom was 45 by the time that, uh, that 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 he called it quits. I mean, and it's interesting too because you know there there are more kind of like parallels. I know he had a couple of good years in Tampa Bay, but then you know, but the thing is, when you ask me or anybody in the future, when you think about Tom Brady, the first words or words that are going to come to your mouth or mind is going to be the New England Patriots, right? Like what, whatever whatever else he did, and he didn't really fade away. I I wouldn't say that tom brady was like one of those players that that hung on too long i mean you know we, we sometimes talk about like you know the the washington wizards era for like for for michael jordan and you know his career maybe didn't end that like the way that the, the the way that he defined himself over all those years being the very best in the NBA right but you know Brady didn't go out that way and and it's interesting because Lewis sees like parallels between you know like you know philosophies diet and fitness and things like that and heck I mean if you can play at the level Tom Brady played in the NFL to the age of 45 and I mean let's let's face it football is going to be about the most brutal sport out there. I mean for for Brady to play at the level that he did for 23 I'm going to say that again. 23 seasons in the NFL is absolutely incredible. So if uh you know Lewis has got more in the tank after 40 and he still wants to then you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that this is the final contract we've seen from 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 Lewis Hamilton or that, for Lewis Hamilton. I yeah, should that, say
0: that's a really good point. And before we take uh, a half hour or so to break down the Tampa Bay Buccaneers' offensive schemes for this upcoming season, I should get in. <laughs> I should get in this quote, but says says uh, Lewis Hamilton. I think I look at people like Tom Brady, who is such an incredible athlete and has shown what can be done today compared to past sporting errors. Um, he's the real role model in that for all athletes to be able to look at. And I'm really fortunate that I'd be able to speak to him and understand his world, what he does consistently to keep himself in shape. And he's expressed it in the media anyway. And then Hamilton also acknowledges that it's great to see Fernando Alonso racing exceeding with Aston Martin in F1 aged 42. And we'll kind of circle back to Fernando, but I think you make a really good point, which is is this just setting them up for an even more extended tenure, right? Because the first thing that came to mind when I saw this story, which is, hey, Mercedes is secure George Russell and Lewis Hamilton for 24 and 25 is, that's not 26. And of course, the reason 2026 is relevant is because- the regulations are getting reset and we're getting a new power unit. And I think we would probably be misguided if we were to suggest there was any chance of anybody but Red Bull winning the title next year and that they have enough of a a developmental lead on the rest of the field that they should be favorites for 25. So it's interesting that he's committing to two more years in this car, knowing that it's going to be a real uphill battle against Red Bull. And The first thing I thought was like, well, why didn't he commit to 26? But again, that may not have been an option. One, the team may not have been offering it. And two, he may also have just wanted the flexibility to decide at the end of 2025 whether he wants to continue and commit to another season. Because by that point, he'll have really good line of sight into the progress of the 2026 chassis and the power unit, et cetera, et cetera. But it is interesting that he's committing to two more years that conclude an era where all of the evidence suggests that Red Bull should be absolutely incredibly dominant and i don't think we need to get into the story but there was also a really interesting um quote from Fernando Alonso this week just reflecting on lewis securing this new deal and his ten- and his kind kind of continued Um, success in the sport, says Fernando Alonso of Lewis Hamilton. If I were a team manager now and I had to choose Hamilton or the youngest on the grid or a promising F2 driver, well, I'll stay with Hamilton until I'm 80 years old. It's really interesting that there's so much mutual (laughs) respect between the two of them now that they're both- uh, Getting deep into to their careers. But I think, and you got to think this, man, that Lewis is sitting here as a 38-year-old, which is just remarkable, by the way. He's sitting here as a 38-year-old, signing up through his 40th year, and he's watching, he's watching Fernando, four years his senior, continually score polls. Like not polls, podiums. Like like Fernando has seven podiums this year, man. It's up, absurd as a 42-year-old. So I, I think that's got to be inspirational to and aspirational to Lewis as well.
1: Oh. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, and it's, it's it's interesting too because I'm I'm just looking up some of the stats here for um you know for, for Lewis, but you know it, it's funny because we went to Japan in 2007, and it was crazy because like that would I guess would have been Lewis's first year in F1, right? And I just remember all over to- Tokyo that I can't remember now if they were billboards for Hugo Boss or if they were um, billboards or ads for Tag Heuer. I mean, regardless, it was one or the other and they, i'm not sure if they still are but they were long time big sponsors for mclaren and it was it was amazing because everywhere we went in in japan there was just these there's billboards with lewis hamilton and we were just kind of like thinking you know, like you know we kind of knew who lewis was and but i mean it was a little bit different even as recent as 2007 i mean you just don't get like that you know this sort of endless repository of information that you have at your fingertips online nowadays. And we all expected there would be like good things, you know, to come from Lewis Hamilton, Hamilton but obviously I don't think anybody expected seven chips and all the you know, 82 victories and 72 poles or or whatever it is, but uh, very cool. But yeah, I mean, just uh, we'll talk, um, you know, like you said, we're going to talk about uh, Fernando as well. But I mean, the, the both of them, especially Fernando at 42, like doing what he's doing. I mean, it, it's it's impressive and you know just to kind of like bring it back to the 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 Brady conversation and comments that you know to to play like at that level for so many years I mean number one you there has to be I know there's that saying that you kind of make your own luck but I mean to avoid like a major injury like like Tom Brady did I mean is a bit of a you know that's very lucky but you know even under normal circumstances to play for almost two and a half decades at the top level is just absolutely amazing but um, again I think it's interesting too that George Russell Getting a, a new contract till the end of 2025. I mean, that, that's a good pairing. I mean, who else are they going to put in that seat? I mean, George has proven that he can get the job done. He's had a couple little off moments here and there, but, uh, you know, I, I think that um, at times he might be overdriving the car a little bit. I think he's maybe just trying to push the car as hard as he can because let's face it, that's what he did at, at Williams. And, and every once in a while that worked. I mean, that. Certainly was, uh, you know, worked to his benefit when it came to qualifying, bringing, bringing that car into, or those William cars, because he was there for a number of uh, years, uh, you know, bring it into areas and, uh, you know, qualifying sessions that uh, he probably shouldn't have. So very, very interesting that uh, they're both there. So like you said, yeah, Fernando Alonso. And of course, like if, if Lewis is uh, driving at that uh, level, why not uh, keep him for as long as uh, you can? But I was just kind of think he's it like, uh, it's funny, he says, I'll go with Hamilton until I'm 80 years old. So, you know, I guess by extension, that would mean till Lewis is 76, you know, if... Fernando was a uh, <laughs> was a team principal. Anyways, uh, the next one's a bit of a fun one, and it says, Sticky with Lewis Hamilton. I'll let you do this one because this is a crossover to boto GP, Valentino Rossi, and something that Lewis has had to wait a very, very long time to do and didn't feel like he could do until now.
0: Yeah, I, I love the story, and shout out to, to my good friend Randy for sending me this story on WhatsApp this morning, but uh, Lewis was recently quoted as saying, I'm just going to pull up the quote here, um, I didn't want to bring neon into my design as Valentino Rossi kind of owned the neon. Then he retired and I was like, okay, now is my moment. I can now grab it. So I brought it into our design last year and I love it. And. And if you don't know what I'm speaking to, I'm really speaking to Lewis Lewis Hamilton's helmet designs. And I think if you look back at his time with Mercedes, we've seen a lot of purple, we've seen a lot of white, we've seen dabs of yellow, we've seen dabs of red. But since 2022, Lewis has gone extreme, a ton of neon. And what he's referring to here is that Valentino Rossi, obviously the legendary motorcycle racer, one of the greatest, possibly the greatest motorcycle racer in the history of the world uh, was very consistent in integrating neon color into his racing suit and into his gloves and, and into his helmet. That was his trademark. And he did it from the minute he got into MotoGP to the minute he retired. And it was a staple that you could look at a MotoGP broadcast and you knew instantly where Valentino was in part because for most of his career, he was leading the field, but also because he was just so bright. And for somebody like me that was a motorcycle rider and would aspire to look like him and, and ride like him, I would always buy the neon stuff, which was very, very cool. But I think this quote from from Lewis is, is very, very respectful, which is, hey, look, that's the look I love, but I wasn't willing to bite his style so long as he was actively riding, that he owned that, that, that look, that that identity was his, but as soon as he retired from the sport hey i'm going all in i want that neon yellow helmet and i think it's i think it's worked for for lewis but i thought it was a pretty cool story like you said a bit of an f1 MotoGP crossover story today yeah,
1: and it's kind of refreshing too, because maybe we obviously don't see it so much in, in in Formula One or motorsports, but, you know, you just kind of get used to, like, athletes, you know, talking trash about each other. And, and uh, you know, and so I thought this was kind of cool to see that. And, you know, personally, I love to see, like, the neon. And, um, you know, I, I love things like the Volt Yellow, Neon Green, and Day Orange. I mean, I wouldn't wear anything like that in normal life, obviously. But for some reason, like, those sorts of colors really work work well in, in motorsports and since lewis is uh, you know incorporated into his helmets and also into the uh, the, the numbering on his uh, on his car it really does stand out quite a bit so it's a it's a it's a pretty cool story okay so now we're going to kind of circle back uh well not circle back we're going to we're going to take a sidestep we're going to talk about uh, aston martin so Mike Crack, the the team principal, has uh, you know flat out said that there's no doubts about uh, Lance Stroll and uh, the, the, some of the issues that he's had there, and that he'll be back for for 2024. So this is kind of interesting. So um, Crack had the following to say: "Quote: It's Monza, it's driver silly season, and it's a bit boring at the moment. I think we don't have any such debate at the moment. We will be fine next year with the two drivers. Uh, I think we have uh, seen over the last week a very hardworking driver trying to analyze every little detail." Where he can approve being in the simulator, driving a lot. So I think that there's nothing that goes in that direction. Uh, there's not a market gap in performance. There's a market gap in points. And then it's important to separate the two. We as a team are analyzing the season from both perspective from both drivers. And I think we as a team need to do much, much better job on the side of the garage on the race strategy, but we also had reliability issues and it was always hitting that car. So that is something we need to do much, much better. End quote. So that's an interesting quote in that comes from an article on uh, autosport.com written by uh, Adam Cooper. So, Mark, your thoughts on this because you know, we've talked quite a bit about uh, you know Lance and the, the fact that you actually did, did you ever actually put your condo in Lance Stroll Island up for sale or did you just consider it? I mean, I, I don't know if we we actually went that far. I I'm looking for pretty a good quiet realtor. there you have I'm no not problems getting take- a seat in a restaurant. <laughs>
0: I I am looking I'm looking for I'm looking for a realtor. So one hashtag propaganda, and you know I'm gonna read here from pitpass.com, says Mike Crack, um, referring to the delta between Alonzo and and Lance. There's not a marked gap in performance. There's a marked gap in points. It's important to separate between the two. We as a team, we are analyzing the season from both perspectives, from both drivers, and I think we as a team need to do a much, much better job on the side of the garage come race strategy, but we also had reliability issues, and it was always hitting that cost. Are, so that is something we need to do much better. I think in general between drivers, there's always a certain gap that you would say is, I would say not normal, but circumstantial. Uh, sometimes you have a bit of traffic. Sometimes one has a glitch in one corner, but I think the drivers are normally within three tenths. This is all propaganda daily. It's it's all nonsense. Like at the end of the day, the delta between these two drivers is absolutely monumental. And I tweeted this a couple of days ago. Lance Stroll has eight points finishes this year. His best finish was a P4 and and Fernando Alonso has seven podium finishes this year seven that you you can't you can't continue to construe this misreality where where you know what it's circumstantial and it's bad luck and it's reliability and it's strategy and it's the mechanics and the engineers the reality is Lance isn't performing at even remotely the same level as as Alonzo. And I think there's a point where if I'm Mike Crack and I'm other senior leaders within that team, I'm, I'm either getting frustrated or I signed up understanding what the deal was. And the deal is that You're going to put Lance Stroll in that second Aston Martin, even if you could technically get a better driver. Let's be very honest. Mm -hmm. With Aston Martin's enormous resources, if they were to release Lance Stroll, they could bring in a better driver that could help them accrue more championship points. I think that is absolutely undebatable at this point. And I like Lance. He's a capable driver. But to me, he's incredibly frustrated because I know there's untapped potential there. But I don't know what to do to unlock it. And at this point, seven, eight years into his championship career, like I, I don't know what else to do. And even if he like, let's say, you know what, he has a great performance at Monza and he scores a podium. I have zero confidence that he would be able to replicate that when we get to Singapore or or Japan. But I, I think I'm frustrated and I think fans are frustrated. And again, I think if I'm if I'm asking Martin, maybe maybe the one person whose voice really matters here, because Mike cracks not going to Lawrence Stroll and having a conversation about replacing Lance Stroll, right? Like he knows better than <laughs> to have no. that conversation. But maybe it's the sponsors that need to come forward and say, "Look, you are cheating us out of the value that we could extract from partnering with this team because you're you're getting diminished results from one of your two drivers." And you know, we talk about the championship. Like Fernando right now sits on 168 points, Lance. Stroll sits P9 in the championship on 47 points. Right now, Aston Martin sits just 40 points behind Mercedes in the Constructors' Championship. If, if, if Lance Stroll was, if he had just two-thirds of the points that his teammate had, they would be sitting P2 in the championship. That's a huge amount of money, and it's a huge amount of marketing exposure and value for the sponsors. But again, frustrated. And the reason we keep hearing these quotes and these comments from people like Mike Crack is because people keep asking the question because they look at that delta. But yeah, I'm, I'm frustrated because I, I just see that, He's functioning as a handicap for a team that should be firmly positioned as P2 in the Constructors' Championship.
1: Well, well that's just the thing right I mean it, it really kind of blows my mind when you look at the constructors that they're only something like 15 16 points or whatever it is ahead of Ferrari in the the constructors uh, championship 14, 14 and man. is it 14. Yeah, okay great it, it's call. actually worse than I thought and you look now because like like Mercedes caught up to Aston Martin and has moved ahead of them and it's it steadily grown that gap and when I look at that I mean I, I don't see that gap closing I mean Fernando's done a wonderful job But, you know, he can't do it all on his own seven podiums, notwithstanding. But the fact that, you know, even though that we we all know that the, the struggles Mercedes have had with the W14, the point is that Lewis and George are consistently bringing home points. And it's not all just Lewis bringing home points. It's not just all George bringing home points. But combined, they've um, you know they brought home, you know, quite a bit. And I mean, like when you look at it, you know, two hundred and fifty-five points compared to two fifteen. I mean, they, they've they've caught up and they've extended that, you know, forty points over Aston Martin. And that, that's that's going to be the worrying thing because as unlikely as it seems that Ferrari get their act together, like not just with the car, I mean, just like gets their act together in general. But I mean, 14 points is not a huge, huge like gap between them. I mean, you know, I I guess you're setting the bar awfully low saying, well, you know, we couldn't sink any, you know, like we couldn't finish anything worse than fourth in the Constructors' Championship this year. But, you know, anything less than... I wouldn't say anything less than second, but I mean, if they they end up finishing the year in third, I mean that that would have to be, for me, awfully dis- disappointing because it looked like we. It doesn't look like we know that this is a, a team that is a car that is capable of so much much more. And like you say, I mean, the delta between the two drivers is just it, it's it's night and day. That's it's that's really where it, it is at at the moment. And I don't want to sit here and throw Lance under the bus or you know criticize him but i mean he obviously isn't delivering what he needs to and at some point well wh- where is that point when uh you know and like you say maybe the pressure comes externally from 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 the sponsors like you say hey you know that this just isn't working for us so make some decisions or we'll go and throw our, our stickers on the side of somebody else's car but uh very very uh, fascinating hey why don't we take another quick break uh, we will come back I want to quickly talk about uh another story obviously and that is uh, liam lawson and the uh, amazing day out that he had at uh, Zanfort the last weekend and we'll do that in just a moment so don't go away we will be right back All right, welcome back to the show. So yeah, now we're going to talk about Alpha Tower We're going to talk about uh, Liam Lawson, who is the the young uh, New, uh, New Zealand driver, because uh, he uh, had to deputize and fill in. Four Danny Ricardo, who unfortunately broke his hand uh, last week uh, at the Dutch Grand Prix, not in the race itself, but uh, in the run-up uh, to the race uh, on Sunday. And, um, you know, Danny's going to be out for a little while with a broken hand. He's got the cast. He's had surgery, all that, uh, nine yards. But uh, despite all the m- and mayhem, chaos... What do you want? Like, I mean, there it was quite the race with the uh, extreme weather that we saw coming in off of the North Sea there, but everything that happened with the weather, with the virtual safety cars and safety cars, I can't remember. Do we have a VSC before safety car? We we had almost everything, but uh, by the time it was all said and done, Liam Lawson finishes P thirteen, which I think is a really really good uh, result for a young driver like that. And considering, you know, Red Bull has uh, some two openings possibly most likely at alpha Tower, is this a young driver that uh, you want to get into that seat and develop because we, we've talked about it quite a lot mark over the years that you know despite having this academy they're just not developing the drivers or they are developing the drivers but they're just not getting the you know getting them into the big team or if they do they don't stick you know ask alex Albon, ask daddy Kvyat, ask you know like about 20 different people but uh, it would be interesting whether or not he's done enough to really make a, a good case for himself to get a full-time Formula One drive in 2024.
0: It was an exceptional outcome for him in Zandvoort, right? Like this is a guy, so he, he's he's he got a little bit of experience in the cars. I think he he did a couple of free practice one sessions last year with Alpha Tauri, I think in... Belgium and Mexico. And then he did a session post race weekend session in the Red Bull at Abu Dhabi. So he's a little bit experienced in the car, but the reality he hasn't been in this year's car. He's been in the sim and then on very short notice he's tossed into this car in wildly unpredictable conditions on the coast in in the netherlands and to finish p13 and to finish ahead of his teammate and ahead of a number of other established drivers despite starting p20 because you know he he i don't want to say he struggled because i think the key for him this weekend was he got one practice session and and i think the key was that if i'm going to get one practice session i can't afford to bin the car i'm just going to go out there and put in as many solid, consistent laps as possible to accumulate data and get familiar with the car. And I think it was the same perspective in qualifying, which is, hey, just don't bin the car. Just go out there, do some reconnaissance, get some laps under your belt, get more comfortable with the car. The fact that he qualified P20 is irrelevant because, again, he wasn't out there to push because he's not familiar with the car. But I just I think the outcome is, is fantastic for him. And now all of a sudden, it adds this entirely new dimension of stress on Daniel Ricciardo that... You know, a month ago we're sitting here. Daniel Ricardo, he's given this opportunity. He caught two races in before the summer break, and he gets the whole summer break to to spend time in the sim and get ready for the back half of the championship. And then all of a sudden, you know, his, his wrist is his wrist is broken, and he's out indefinitely. And I know people are saying, "Well, he'll be back for Singapore." He's not going to be back for Singapore. Singapore has a ridiculously tough circuit. It's very technical. It'll be incredibly difficult on that hand. He simply won't have the grip or the strength. And then the question is, if he doesn't come back for singapore what does he come back is it japan is that the right race is it austin does he come back this year at all and then the other challenge is if he comes back too soon and he struggles he nukes his possibility of continuing with this team next year like he's damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't because if he rushes back and he underperforms he's out and if he takes too long and liam lawson continues to show show well he's possibly out as well so what a what a horrible terrible situation for Daniel Ricardo to end up in. So I feel bad for Ricardo, but I'm equally as excited for Liam Lawson that this is a totally unpredictable outcome. And there was a really great article on F1.com written by Lawrence Barreto, and he kind of walks you through Liam Lawson's weekend that you know he's sitting in the driver's briefing on, I guess, Friday, and then all of a sudden he's notified, hey, Daniel's out. And then 20 minutes later, uh, AlphaTauri announces that he's not going to compete that race weekend and Liam Lawson's going to step in. And all of a sudden, you know, he's getting his race suit ready and he's checking to make sure if his seat still fits and he's going through uh, procedure familiarization. What a crazy weekend, but tremendous outcome for Liam Lawson um, to finish two spots ahead of his teammate, Yuki, who's had a solid year in a terrible car. Um, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how because this coming weekend, Monza's going to be dry and the AlphaTauri is not really a slippery car. So the outcome might not be as favorable, but it'll be interesting to see if he can bring that car home safely this weekend.
1: Yeah, you know, but um, I know that you said that uh, that Yuki's had a pretty decent season so far, but yet he's kind of been shown up by both Danny Ricardo and, uh, and Liam Lawson. So I, I think that's you know that that uh, what we were talking about earlier off the top of the show that uh, both those uh, seats for Alpha Tower in twenty twenty four are question marks. You know, I, I think you can make the the argument that, um, you know, sure, like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, if you're um, uh, Danny Ricardo, but Yuki, I mean, he's been shown up now by by two other guys and one guy that hadn't even been in a car, a Formula One car this season. So it, it becomes interesting. And then I, I think that it'll be, I think what they decide to do with their driver lineup will really I think be a good indicator of where this team is kind of going with like the whole rebrand because you know, toast is out at the end of the year. He's retiring. Laura M- uh, Miki's is coming in as the, uh, as the new team principal. I mean, they're, they're going to shake it up. And I mean, at least on the outside, it looks like it's going to be a little bit different from Red Bull, so it'll be interesting to see what they kind of do with the with the driver lineup. And I mean, the one knockup against Yuki is that he's kind of always been like a little bit of a a bit of a rebel. I know that it was maybe they cherry picked some of those moments for I guess it was Drive to Survive season four, but I mean, it was a guy that kind of needed. Let's just say, like an expert guiding hand to really help get him focused, because remember he was living in the UK, Milton Keynes, and they they had him, uh, you know, move up and move to Italy to be closer to the to the headquarters of Alpha Towery down there. So, I mean. He's a young guy. There's obviously some I don't know if you want to call them maturity issues but kind of like some well, I guess maybe growing up and coming of age and you know professional issues which I mean I I think he's kind of like over well, I wouldn't say overcome but he's taken a step in the right direction but it'll be very interesting to see what uh, they decide to do with, uh, with with this team. And yeah, I mean Danny Ricardo, right? I mean uh, <laughs> what a a tough tough position to be in, because I thought that he did so well to start the the, the way that he did. I mean, he, I mean, it's not like he's been out of Formula One for like like two or three seasons. I mean, he'd only been out of the car since the end of twenty twenty two, but yet that that's a long time. Because okay, maybe technology wise, these cars haven't moved ahead like a light year. But whereas he's been sitting out since the end of last year, all these other, the, the 19 other drivers, they've already got like 10, 11 races under the belts or 10 races, whatever it was at the time when Ricardo came along. So that, that's a big delta to close just in, in in fitness. But I mean, what, what a bit of a freak accident too. I mean, he breaks his hand and his wrist and everything like that. I mean, we see have drivers have accidents all the time and some pretty heavy ones. And, and, and this is not something that, uh, that, that we see too long. So It'll it'll really be interesting to see how Danny Ricardo, you know handles this situation and what he does and ultimately what the outcome is, or whether or not he can really strike that, you know, that, that fine balance and find that, that sweet spot in, in coming back and not waiting too long and letting Liam showcase himself longer than, uh, that would be good for Danny Ricardo's own interests. But at the same time, like you said, you don't want to come back and get onto a track, which is too demanding. I mean, I I could imagine having to drive around any Formula One track, let alone one like Singapore, where you know it, it seems like they're constantly turning which which is a great track i love singapore but it is uh i <laughs> I, I don't know honestly how they handle that one uh hammy but uh, let, let's move ahead now uh this is an interesting one uh flexi wings and i guess there's been some talk about this technical direct and the whole concept of flexi wings why don't you walk us uh, through uh, the these latest uh, developments and stories what's going on with flexi wings
0: Yeah, so I I love this topic. Back in 2021, mid-season, there was, of course, that moment where Lewis was on the radio when he was behind uh, Max Verstappen, and he said, hey, that wing is bending. And there was this furious uproar. What is a bendy wing, and why does it matter? And I went and dug up a a really great article from motorsport.com back from 2021. And the reason it's relevant is because um, it appears that the FIA is going to start taking a much stricter stance on the rigidity of the wings on the car. So if you look at the FIA regulations, it basically says, look, your front wing and your rear wing have to be rigid to a certain degree. And there's all kind of load tests that they perform to make sure because the the reality is they don't want they don't want active aerodynamics, meaning that the aerodynamic features of the car can be modified under load and at speed to provide different outcomes to the team. So there's all kinds of regulations about the fact that they must be rigid. Um, I'm reading here from pitpass.com, article 322 of the regulation states that all aerodynamic components or bodywork influencing the car's aerodynamic performance must be rigidly secured and immobile with respect to their frame of reference. Furthermore, these components must produce a uniform Form. solid. Hard, continuous, impervious surface under all circumstances. Any device or construction that is designed to bridge the gap between the sprung part of the car and the ground is prohibited under all circumstances. And this article continues. Wings, of course, can never be rigid. However, with the proposed technical directive 018, the FIA suggests that teams have been exploiting regions of purposely designed, or sorry, of purposely designed localized compliance in addition to relative motion between adjacent components. So. Basically, what the FIA is saying is compile all your documentation, your CAD renderings, and all of your data and hand it over because we want to get a better sense of what's going on with these wings. Because there's a belief that these load tests that the FIA are performing to make sure that the wings are rigid um, don't necessarily reflect the function of the wings under load. So when the car is at high speed, and the reason this is relevant is because... The cars or the the wings could have this effect of tilting, and I'm going to read here from motorsport.com because it might provide some more insight. But and I quote this article from was this? This was Jake boxel Um, The article states, what is a flexi-wing and why do F1 teams attempt to employ them? And the article reads, flexi-wings are, well, wings that flex. So we're talking the front wing and the rear wing. Strictly speaking, all wings flex as it's impossible to achieve infinite stiffness, but some do so more than others. In F1 terms, this is usually manifested in a tilting action. At speed, the front and rear wings produce more drag as the velocity of the car increases. In mathematical terms, the square of the velocity determines the drag force as per this equation. Drag force equals the coefficient of drag by frontal area by air density by velocity squared divided by two. As speed increases, the force pulling the car back increases Exponentially. As such, you can't use all of the maximum drive of the powertrain to develop speed on the straights. At circuits like Monza, teams use skinny wings, and we're going to see that this weekend, to slash drag. But at more conventional circuits, you need the full size of the front and rear wings to generate downforce in the corners. And this is the most important part of this article. By tilting them back at speed, this can reduce the overall frontal area of the wing and perhaps its drag coefficient entirely by using the above formula the increasing square of velocity is being marginally offset by the reduced area and drag coefficient so what they believe is happening here is the teams are intentionally designing and engineering wings that at speed tilt and by tilting they're reducing the area of drag allowing the cars to go faster and this is something that People suggested was happening with the front wing on the Aston Martin earlier this season, and something people suggested was happening with the rear wing on the Red Bull in 2021. But ultimately, the FIA is saying these as, as much as, as much as physically possible, your front and rear wing have to be stiff. And what teams presumably are trying to do is create some. Flexibility in the wing so that at speed they tilt, reducing the area of drag, allowing cars to go faster. And then at slower speeds in high downforce corners, they still generate all of that downforce to allow the car to be sticky as possible. So interesting. I don't know what the outcome of this is necessarily going to be, but again, the idea of flexi wings is nothing new, and it's constantly this battle between the FIA to try to regulate and govern the regulations and the teams, whose role, quite frankly, is to. Push the limits to their absolute limit to, to gain every bit of competitive advantage that they can. So, so yeah, it's just an ongoing story, but a useful one to talk about, especially in the shadow of some of the allegations around Aston Martin and their front wing earlier this season.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because uh, as you say, I mean, like the the, the whole concept of flexi wings has—it's nothing new. I mean, it's it, uh, it's it started back in twenty twenty one, and it's it, it seems to pop up fairly. I wouldn't say fairly regularly, but often enough to, you know, to, to be a conversation and obviously somewhere that the FI needs to, you know, to, to police. But uh, I mean, it, it's gotta be difficult too. I mean, I guess they, they can test for the rigidity of the wing, but you know, as you say, teams, you know, people are getting paid to find loopholes or to exploit the rules to the, the, the absolute maximum. I mean, and, and, and the teams, they will, they will try and engineer a solution within the, the, you know the the parameters that they have, and I think that's part of the reason that uh, that Formula One is uh, is so fascinating. Okay, uh, before we get into the uh, the race preview, let's uh, talk about this one. This is a uh, kind of an interesting one. This is from Oliver Harden over at PlanetF1.com. So uh, apparently, uh, Matteo Bonotto did uh, cross paths with uh, Frederica Vasseur, and apparently there are some rumors floating around there about Bonotto perhaps winning Grand Prix. And the the funny thing was, the cop's going to Alpine, and so they well they they cross paths here at the at Monza, the atomical moment was that uh, that uh, Bonotto arrived with a Netflix camera crew behind him, and uh, it is uh, interesting because there are rumors kind of floating around that uh, he will be the new team principal at uh, Alpine. And <laughs> I I don't know. It's just like I I don't know whether to to, to believe the rumors or whether I want to believe the the, the fact that uh, that Bonotto might uh, take that job because that to me Mark seems like that would be a t- difficult difficult undertaking for whoever
0: takes over from 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 Otmar right it's it's tough right that if we're talking about Matteo Bonazzo returning to formula 1 there's only 10 teams the 10 openings and there's only one team right now that has uh, a vacancy and that's that's Alpine and do you want to sign up for that specific Gig because it's going to be a challenge. I mean, the car is probably better in terms of where it is in the development pathway than we give it credit for, but we obviously know there's a deficit in terms of the. Uh, power output of the engine, and and we know that they've got some antiquated facilities. And we also know that senior executives at Renault like to, to meddle. And we heard those quotes recently from Otmar Snafnauer speaking to the fact that I was in charge of the F1 team, but certain divisions within the F1 team didn't even report to me that it would be a challenge. But I think for Matteo Bonato, it's not like he has a lot of choice if he's hungry to return to the grid, but uh, I think maybe this is a team I would take a pass on. but you know what, if you do that, what type of message does that send to other potential suitors in the future when a vacancy ends up somewhere else that, hey, look, you know what, he felt he was too good for the Alpine job and now he wants to pursue our job. Um, I don't know. I just, I think it's tough, but maybe he does pursue it. But I, I would just say it's a not insignificant project because of their lack of infrastructure. Um, they, they, antiquated facilities at Endstone. the fact that at least for the next two years, unless the rest of the teams come together and they're willing to make some concessions from a power unit perspective to even the playing field, that you're at a disadvantage from a power unit perspective, meaning that no matter how great your aerodynamics are, you're always going to get crushed at tracks like Monza because you've simply got too much of a power deficit. Like All I'm saying ultimately that I hope he knows what he's signing up for when he goes in there because Otmar did a pretty damn good job of summarizing the challenges that he had with that team. So so it'll be interesting to see, man.
1: Yeah, and I still think it's a little bit... uh, Yeah... I, think, I feel like it was premature that they, they, they canned Otmar Safnauer as they did because, in and of course, this is Otmar giving his side of the story, but he said that he needed like a hundred or they, they had like a hundred race plan or something like that to get the team from where it is to where they, they, they wanted to be. So, I mean, basically like a four-year thing. And if you go read Ross Braun's book, Total Competition, Ross talks about the fact that, um, you know, he always had like a, a three-year plan of attack when going into to to manage a team where basically like year one, you come in through the front door, you're learning the names of everybody that works there, you're learning how the car works, you're learning how the design team does things, you're learning how they build the engines, or how they they source their engines and how they do this and how they do that. The second year you can start looking at okay, this is what we learned at year one, this is what we this is what this is where we're at, this is where we start needing to to go towards. And year three, you can start you you that's when you implement your own plan and start improving and moving towards the the, the future. So not totally indifferent from you know Otmar's you know, Otmar's plan of like a hundred races to improve this team from where we are to where we need to be. And uh, it it just but you know. I just every time I look at Alpine, the one word that consistently pops up in my mind, Mark, is micromanaging, 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 micromanaging. I just uh, I, I think you could take almost anyone and drop them in there, and it just feels like there was you know interference from from elsewhere. I mean, it, it was it was interesting earlier in the season how, you know, now the CEO of special projects, aka Counting Staples in the basement, Laurent Rossi, basically threw Otmar and you know under under the bus and then he's the one that's you know assigned to quote unquote special projects you know before Otmar is uh, ultimately let go so it just uh, I I don't know like I I was really excited a number of years ago when they came back to the grid in 2015 after taking over that that floundering Lotus project right I figured okay th- this is a th- th- this is Renault for crying out loud this is not some boutique special specialty car manufacturer like Spiker F1 that you know from to, to name one from twenty years ago, right? And I, I just had so much hope that that they would be able to build a team that's a contender, but I mean it's just sort of been up and down, and a couple of flashes here and there, and then Ricardo was able to bag a couple of podiums for them. And they, they, the point is that they've had some moments, but not really a lot. And then, but the thing is, it's it's almost like the success that they've had. I I wouldn't go as far as to say that it's accidental, but it it didn't really seem that. Uh, and again, I'm just trying to pick my words, but you know what I'm trying to say is that it, it wasn't expected to have the success that they've had. And, you know, maybe Bonotto is that is that person that can turn it around. But again, like you say, he has to go into that situation with eyes wide open or else, you know, he could be... Otmar Safnauer, now you know 18 months down the road or whatever it is so I don't know I, I'm just very skeptical and and, and I, I just sort of question where the commitment is from, from Renault and saying well yeah we want to be in Formula One we're gonna we're, we're gonna stay in Formula one but like you say at endstone it's an outdated facility I mean there, there's so many things that need need improving and and it's it's no real surprise when you look at some of the teams that are struggling are the ones that uh, that, that aren't investing in there I mean you know like you know, Ohas is another one that we talk about repeatedly Williams as well is another team that has like needs to bring their, their, their the facilities up to scratch because I was just blown away by that quote from James Voles a couple of months ago. It's just like how they were saying that something that he believed could be like, you know, done in three, you know, 30 or not 30 days and 90 days and three months was something that, uh, that the feedback that he's got was something, Oh, we could do that, but that will like in our current structure will take us three years. I mean, Oh, boy, eye roll, sigh, all of the above, but uh, crazy stuff. Anyways, what do you think, Mark? I've kind of rambled there, obviously. Do you think there's anything to Alpine? And if uh, Binota were to go there, do you think he would be a good fit?
0: I don't know. I don't know, man. I I mean, you know, I'm going to say no, because I think I think he's going to encounter very much the same meddling senior leadership at Renault that he did at Ferrari. And you and I talked about this last year when, when he left the team unceremoniously, a that a lot of that was presumed to be because he didn't have a ton of autonomy when it came to making decision, like when it came to decision making around the Formula One team, and and we talked about Elkan and Vinya and and some of the other. Personalities within that Formula One superstructure that were clearly meddling with decision making. And then he's going to go to Renault, which has a well-documented case of exactly the same thing. So unless Luca DeMeo, the CEO of Renault, commits to step away and give him a complete runway and undo a lot of the problematic structures that had been implemented for Otmar. I just I don't know why he would do it. Like as a team principal, you need complete autonomy to, to build the Formula one team in the way you want. And then the other observation or consideration here is that when Matteo Bonato was with Ferrari, um, it's not like they were contending for championships at least when he was team principal and he had unlimited resources at his disposal right like he had unlimited resources when he goes to alpine he's going to have very finite resources that Renault is not pumping a ton of money into this team hence endstone hence the fact that they they have a significant power deficiency with their power unit like he's going to be going to a team that's going to operate on a budget maybe that changes as they continue to bring. On new investors that can help upgrade facilities and things like that but i think my point is he wasn't particularly successful at ferrari uh, which had all the resources in the world and meddling executives and now he's going to go to a team with what which finer resources and meddling executives I, I just i don't see it ending well
1: yeah. And it's funny too, just, uh, you know, I know we kind of like jumping back and forth here, but you know, meddling, when you said like, a you know, meddling executives, I think is the, uh, the, 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 perfect word choice there, because you know, that, that story that we talked about a couple of weeks ago is that, uh, John Elkan like reportedly, allegedly had approached uh, Lewis Hamilton about, uh, you know, joining Ferrari and offering him a, a contract there. And it's just like, <laughs> if that's indeed the case and you're, uh, you're, um, uh, Frederick Vassour and you go jump onto your phone in the morning and you're looking at uh, Gazzetto della Sport or whatever it is in Italy and you see that rumor there that your boss is going behind your back and be like well, whoa 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 hang on here are you know aren't I the person in charge aren't I the you know the the big uh, you know the, the the big Enchilada or whatever you want to call it <laughs> so it' uh, the the teams that struggle obviously have like l- a lot more you know going on and a lot of organizational issues as well anyways enough on that let's take a- a quick break. We'll come back. We'll finally get to our race preview. So don't go away. We will be back in just one moment. All right, welcome back. So Mark, here we go. Time for the race preview. We're off to Monza this weekend. The first uh, practice sessions set to get underway in just a couple of hours from now as we sit down here on a Thursday night to record this podcast. So what we know about uh, Monza, that uh, it is one of the classic F1 tracks. It is a fast flat out circuit, not too many corners, but some of the corners that we have there are pretty drastic. So uh, this track has uh, 11 corners, four to the left, seven to the right. And uh, I've got some stats here about uh, Monza. So here we go. It is a um, 5.79 kilometers or exactly 3.6 miles. The race lap record is a 121.046. That was uh, set by Rubens Barrichello in a uh, Ferrari in 2004. I thought that was uh, something to do with the, I could have sworn that was a uh, 1.0. One- problem on toys but maybe his was the fastest uh, average speed maybe that's what it was um, anyways uh, the tires that uh, pirelli are bringing this weekend are the softest in the range is a c3 c4 and c5s last year was more middle of the pack of their um their tire compounds anyways this is a, a track how many laps do we have on this one uh, coming up uh, this weekend it is uh and i didn't write that down <laughs> pardon me i'll look that up as we we keep uh, talking. But uh, yeah, Mark, this is a fascinating uh, circuit. Sorry, 53 laps. I knew I had it uh, somewhere. Um, So this is a fascinating uh, circuit. Uh, Like I say, there are a lot of very, very high speed flat out uh, corners. So the, the interesting part is that this is an older school kind of track. It's not especially wide as compared to a lot of the modern circuits. So we're going to see that uh, all day long on Sunday when we go into turns one and two, which is the, the, the retifilio chicane. And that is, you know, especially at the start, you're going to come down from start finish when the lights uh, turn green. They're going to go down, they're going to throw it into this uh, 90 degree right-hand turn into turn one, throw it into turn two, which is more than a 90 degree turn. Then you go into the curva grande and then you have a fast run up to turns four and five, which is the, the second chicane that we're going to see on the lap, which is a, a very interesting one too, because they come out of that chicane and then they tread the tightrope a little bit because you have a curb and then you have a gravel trap on the outside of the track. And the optimal area for grip is this thin strip of asphalt or concrete between the back of the curb and the gravel. So if you get a little bit too far, you're going to put a dipping a tire into the gravel if you don't go far enough, you're having a bumpy ride over the curbs. Then you go into turns six and seven, the Lesmos, which are amazing because they're flying at this point, uh, even that short run up out of the chicanes. I mean, they carry a lot of speed around this lap and the Lesmos are cool because these are basically 90 degree corners. They're very snappy, very fast. Then after turn seven, you they run down the hill into uh, turns uh, eight, nine and 10, which is the Ascari chicane. And then you get a nice long straightaway till turn 11, which is a uh, para. Bolica and then that brings it back to uh, start-finish. It's fast, it's furious, it's very, very quick. Lap uh, lap time is about a 120 or thereabouts, and uh, this is going to be a power track, uh, no doubt about it. So anyone that has good top-end speed, anybody that's got a fast, slippery car should do well here, and obviously that's going to benefit uh, Red Bull, but there's going to be some other interesting cars as well. I mean, Williams, we know, has, a, it has quite a slippery car. They might not uh, challenge for for the race win, but we've seen some more, you know, promising outings uh, from then. Uh, Aston Martin, yeah, man, I don't know about that. The, that uh, AMR twenty three seems to be a little bit draggy. Mercedes quite probably doesn't have it uh, just yet, so it's going to be interesting, right? I, I, I mean, we expect that the Red Bulls are going to you know, do well in qualifying here. But uh, how does the, the the rest of the grid uh, line up? I mean, is it, uh, is it necessarily Aston Martin or is it going to be Mercedes? Is it, going to be, uh, is it going to be McLaren? Is it going to be mixed up there? Is Alex Albon going to put his hand up and say, hey, you know, I might not have the best all-round car, but it's pretty slippery in a straight line and there's lots of fast sections on this track and qualifies well. So
0: plenty to, to think about this one, uh, Mark. Yeah, you did a really good job of summarizing what the experience is going to look like on on track. And we've been talking a lot lately about high down force versus low down force circuits. That uh, a high down force circuit is where you need as much aerodynamic grip as possible to keep the car sticky through high-speed corners and sectors. The, the offsetting effect of having a lot of aerodynamic features that create downforce is that it creates drag and straights, which means the car slower and a straight. In this circuit, like you said, how many corners are we talking? Like six or seven corners? It's it's nothing crazy. In, in this circuit, the, the corners themselves aren't fast enough that they would generate a lot of meaningful downforce anyways. So what the teams will do for this track, and you're going to see it is they're going to bring out their low downforce wings, which means they're going to be very simplified versions of what we've seen the rest of the year, because they don't need that rear wing to generate a lot of downforce. So they want as little surface area as possible, because less surface area means less drag. And that's going to help them be as fast as possible on those super powerful straights. So Again, like I said, super low downforce, but unfortunately, it's also a really low grip circuit, which is why, and I don't know if you mentioned this, they're going to bring out the C3, the C4, and the C5 tires this weekend. They're going to bring out the stickiest tires possible because they need to offset the fact that there isn't a lot of downforce being generated. Um, So ultimately, the cars that are going to be successful are the cars that can produce some really significant aerodynamic efficiency that might offset some of their power, uh, power efficiencies um, or the cars that just have incredibly powerful power units. And it's not just the top end speed that matters here. It's how quickly the car can get to that point. So torque's important because you want to be able to achieve that top end speed as quickly as possible to create separation between you and the other cars. And because when it comes to overtaking here, it's going to happen on those straights. And because there's a lot of straights and they're high speed, you should see a lot of overtaking this weekend. A couple of other things that are really interesting is that the average, average top speed this weekend is expected to be about 260 to 264 kilometers an hour which is about 162 to 164 miles per hour and the highest speed that we should see this weekend is around 362 kilometers or 225 miles per hour that is the fastest we (laughs) see anywhere on the calendar. Now during the middle sector, during the midsection of the V10 era we would actually see cars hit as high as 370 kilometers an hour on this track so again that 360 62 isn't the fastest that we've seen, but the average speed is much higher than we saw in the, v, the V10 era because the cars were more cumbersome to drive and they didn't have the aerodynamic uh, properties that they do now. So some interesting things to, to see there. Um, but like I said, power units are really important. But this is a track that is also extremely hard on the power unit. So we talked about Zandvoort and and Hungary being relatively easy on the power units because it's more about just getting them to a good place and and kind of coasting through some of those corners and using the aerodynamic downforce to create grip and to kind of sustain speed. Here, it's all about maximizing that power unit. And I think I said earlier in the podcast that these drivers will be at full throttle for 80% of the, the lap. That is... Imagine, dude, imagine getting into your car and driving to the grocery store, and for 80% of that trip, you are at red line. You're just bouncing off the red line. That, that's incredibly taxing for a road car, but it's also incredibly taxing for a Formula One car. The other big thing to consider this weekend is that we are going to be introducing, or Pirelli will be introducing, the alternate tire allocation uh, once again. And I guess the last time we did this was Hungary, which means that each driver will be provided with 11 sets of slick tires, three hard, four medium, and four soft. And then we're also going to see, of course, the FIA, Pirelli, they'll dictate the compound that will be used in each of the qualifying sessions. So in Q1, we'll see the hard, Q2, the medium, and Q3, the soft, which I think is a strategy um, that they probably want to introduce on a more permanent basis next year. But obviously it throws a wrinkle into qualifying. I don't I don't hate it, but it throws a, a wrinkle into into qualifying. And then maybe the other thing to consider too is we're expecting a dry race for the first time in like four months. We've had a lot of wet <laughs> races. Uh but the other we thing have. to consider is yeah. last year there were no Less than eight different strategies deployed by the top 10 finishers in terms of tire strategy Max Verstappen and George Russell who finished first and third last year opted for a single stop while Charles Leclerc had two stops before there was a safety car and ultimately went in a third time so it'll be interesting to see what strategies they deploy as well if it's dries at a one stop if it's if it's dries at a two stop do you gain do you find a little bit of extra speed with that fresher set of tires towards the end but then again you only have 11 this weekend and you're going to burn through a bunch during qualifying. It'll be super curious to see. But I think to your earlier point in terms of what our expectation is this weekend, obviously it's going to be fun to see what what, what Williams can pull out of the bag. They were very, very quick and they were very, very slippery in sector one at uh, at SPA. Um, it'll be interesting if they can kind of continue some of that, uh, some of that trend this, this weekend. So, um, from my perspective, obviously Red Bull is going to dominate. Ferrari should be pretty efficient. It'll be fun to see how Aston Martin performs because they don't have the slippery car and Mercedes and some of these other cars.
1: Yeah, and good for you, Mark, for pointing out uh, that that this uh, is a track that is very hard on uh, on engines because last year we had uh, four retirements. We had uh, a double DNF for the, the Aston Martins. Both of them retired with engine problems. Danny Ricardo retired at his uh, McLaren with an oil leak at the time he said he just lost the engine. And then Fernando Alonso retired at the Alpine with water pressure issues. I mean, th- these are all, you know you know indications to me that, that this is machinery being pushed to its absolute limit being pushed to extremes on a track uh, like Monza and we should uh, point out that uh, Danny Ricardo retired on lap 45 that ultimately led to the safety car being deployed with about you know half a dozen laps to 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 go and then you know Max actually took the checkered flag behind the safety car there were a number of drivers you know Charles uh, Leclerc and uh, Lando Norris who were both uh, quite uh, upset about that and and it's unfortunate because uh, you know it was um, you know we don't want to see that happen uh, all all the time, but by the time they they cleared the track and everything, uh, just um, logistic reasons, I suppose. But it's interesting if you look at the um, after the, the the Italian Grand Prix last year, the the drivers and constructors championship. So Max was running away with it; he had three hundred thirty five points uh, compared to Charles Leclerc, who had two hundred nineteen at that point. Uh, Sergio Perez at two hundred ten, and the constructors after the Italian Grand Prix in twenty twenty two, Red Bull at five hundred forty. And then for I had four hundred six Mercedes three seventy one so. You know, I mean, this dominance from from Red Bull is, is is not a new thing. I mean, that's a that's a similar ish type of gap that uh, that he enjoys over or Max uh, enjoys over his teammate uh, Sergio Perez. Although the the gap in the constructors uh, championship is bigger than it was uh, this year. So last year the fastest lap was set by uh, Sergio Perez on lap forty six, and he set a, a time of one twenty four point oh three oh, so our qualifying time. So Charles was on pole last year. So he said a Q3, his poll time was a 120.161. Uh, Max's Q3 time was a 120.306. Then on row two, you had Carlos Sainz and Sergio Perez. So uh, Carlos set a time of uh, 120.429. So you had those first three cars within about uh, two and a half tenths of each other. And then by the time you got to Sergio Perez, who was uh, lining up on the outside of uh, row two, he was already into the one two. So there was was quite a significant uh, jump between... uh, Carlos Sainz to Sergio Perez already about seven tenths of a second so uh, really quite uh, quite interesting and then so the the, the final race classification last year I'll just run down the top 10 Max Verstappen P1 Charles Leclerc P2 George Russell P3 and then you had Carlos Sainz Lewis Hamilton Sergio Perez Lando Norris Pierre Gasly Nick DeFries who was uh, filling in uh, that, uh, that weekend at, uh, at Williams and then uh, Joe Guan Yu uh, finished uh, in P10 because at uh, this time last year unfortunately uh Alex Albon had that uh, unfortunate medical turn and uh situation had to, to miss a race and that's when uh poor old Dick deFries looked like he might be the next greatest thing or another hot prospect in Formula One and here we are not even a, a year later he got a full-time seat and has already come and gone in in Formula One but uh Mark, I, you know, I, I tried to sum it up a, a little bit here. I, I guess we're kind of looking for, for wild cards more than anything, unless we see something unexpected happen, like in terms of reliability or, say, uh, you know, coming together at T1 on that first lap, because we always see cars going all over the place. You try to get those, you know, 20 F1 cars through the Redefilio chicane. There's, there's always cars taking to the runoff area and stuff, and there's always touches of wings and and, and other parts of bodywork being broken so it's not beyond the realm of possibility in those first lap or two until the the field kind of sorts itself out and settles down a little bit but this to me just has Red Bull written all over it I mean that that combination of Red Bull and Honda is uh, pretty much invincible at the best of times and I think that uh, they'll you know they're going to be difficult to catch and then there's always the question that uh, that that you bring up is like have they really uncorked the full potential of this car Are they 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 just using whatever they have and we we haven't really seen what this car is, is is capable of so there's 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 questions out there for sure
0: yeah and and by the way I appreciate that despite the fact that I'm having some technical issues over here you managed to carry this segment beautifully so thank you so much for that <laughs> but I think obviously Red Bull should will dominate this weekend. And I think if there's some things that I'll be interested in seeing is obviously on a dry weekend, it'll be interesting to see what Liam Lawson can do. Can he bring the car home safely? Is he going to be a reliable driver? Can he outperform Yuki Sonoda? Because you made a great point earlier about the fact that Yuki now a couple times this season has been shown up by his newer teammates. And then of course, for me, it will be Aston Martin. And can, can Fernando Alonso continue to build on this phenomenal season? Although this is certainly not a circuit that that reflects that does a good job of um, illustrating the capabilities of that Aston Martin car. What does Mercedes look like? Ferrari, we know their power unit is incredibly capable and the car could be slippery if set up correctly. Uh, can they overcome some of their other institutional challenges that they've encountered the last couple of years? So there's still some, there's still some storylines here. And ultimately somebody that's not a Red Bull driver will be on the podium. So that's going to be an interesting story. Would it be a Mercedes driver an Aston Martin driver? Does Alpine make another appearance, which is highly unlikely because of their power deficit versus the rest of the field a power circuit all of that to say there's still some things to look forward to this weekend
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and Monza is a classic track, you know, that uh, that uh, if Ferrari even does remotely well this weekend, that the Tifosi are just going to be uh, going crazy. I mean, it, it's a great atmosphere at that track. The Italian fans really, uh, you know, really make it uh, something special to watch because I did go back and watch some of the race highlights uh, just, uh, you know, uh, a couple of days ago. And at the beginning of the race, uh, you know, because Charles Leclerc led this race for a very, you know, significant portion of the race, it wasn't until about, uh, you know, the, the, the round of pit stops at about lap 30 something, if I remember that, uh, that, that, uh, he was passed by, uh, Bax Verstappen when he went into, to the pits, but you know, it, uh, <laughs> it, uh, you know, when there's a Ferrari out front and remember Charles won this race a couple of years ago and that really kind of really cemented him as like a favorite, a favorite to, to Ferrari, because that was at a time when they, they weren't, re- well, they haven't really been at uh, you know up there at a pinnacle, but I mean, he he did really, really an exceptional job. Because remember that because like both uh, you know Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas were kind of like taking turns trying to see if they could get Charles. But it seemed like every time they kind of came around to the end daily, of the lap in sector three, stop,
0: stop yeah. with your stop with your love for Charles Leclerc. That was peak Ferrari cheating season. Hashtag that's true. That was ch- I. Let's let's be fair. I
1: was gonna, I was gonna get around to that. Okay, but, uh, fine. <laughs> you you gotta give like you gotta give the fans at least one moment to feel happy about because you know like as much as it's been like a kind of like a lonely, quiet, somewhat depressing place on Landstroll Island, think about all the millions of Tafosi on, on Ferrari Island because you know I, I don't see a lot of like happy faces around there. So you gotta well, we'll give them one since it's their home Grand Prix. But anyways, point 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 well taken hammy so anyways i mean i don't really have anything else to say i mean i i i can't imagine anyone else other than backs doing well I guess the the or winning this one I, I just uh you know my next question is what what can Sergio pull out of the bag because you know he seems to be a little bit inconsistent sometimes he has a great race sometimes he doesn't sometimes he's had some stinkers so we seem to get like a, a little bit of everything from uh, Sergio Perez and then uh, I guess there's uh everyone else so I don't know do you have anything else to add to that because I certainly don't <laughs> Okay. Well, I, I see you badly clicking buttons and furring your eyebrows there. So rather than drag this out any longer, when well, we've run out of things to talk about. Anyways, we'll, we'll wrap it up here and uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just uh, call it a night. So thank you one and all for uh, joining in and listening uh, to us tonight. If you uh, like the show, please uh, head on over to Spotify or Apple podcast. Leave us a five-star rating and review. That would be much, much, much appreciated by both myself and Mark Hamilton uh, it helps us uh, grow the show. And, and uh, introduce it to other people and share it with a friend or a family member or someone you know that likes a uh, formula one uh mark and i will be back on sunday night to wrap uh, this uh, grand prix for ch- so check out uh our race report dropping on sunday at some point at some time depending where you are in the world i hate to be vague but uh you know global sports that uh you know it drops at different times for different people so we'll get it to you as soon as you can and that's it. That's a wrap. If you want to get in touch, send us a, a tweet at scuderiaf one pod or an X. I don't know what we call it anywhere. We'll call it, well, we'll stick with Twitter for now. And send us an email, ScooteriaPod at uh, scuderiaf one pod at gmail.com. Thanks everyone. Enjoy the race. We'll see you Sunday night. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.